and God is like, you turned your person against story into a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you the way that you are? Welcome to our True Crime Podcast, Unreasonable Doubt. We're back. I'm Sarah. I have a master's degree in criminal justice, and this is Christy, our social justice warrior. Before we start, we have to warn you that this is a podcast not to be listening with little ones around. We can't, or rather we don't, control our language, and we'll be talking about some very gory, and in this case, some very sexual things. This is part two of the murder of Travis Alexander. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please pause and go listen to that one first. Yeah, and we have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to try to mind the limited manners that I have and not interrupt Sarah as much. (laughs) So let's start off with the autopsy. The autopsy was um, conducted on the 12th of June, 2008. That's today. Oh my gosh, it is today. (laughs) We have this weird habit with like doing things on, on significant dates. Um, So the medical examiner for the county, Dr. Kevin Horn, performed the autopsy on Travis. There was evidence of moderate decomposition, as indicated by bloating, green discoloration, and multifocal skin slippage with purge exuding, sorry, exuding, purge, exuding from the nose and mouth. I don't think I've ever heard that one, purge. Okay, anyway. Um, so I'm just going to do a summary because originally I had like all the, all the like measurements and details, but I think that that's just too much. So let's just sum it all up. Travis's body had multiple lacerations and punctures, 29 to be exact, to the head, the neck, the torsos and extremities, and then a slit throat, as well as a single gunshot wound to the head. Now the slit on his throat it measured six inches across. It was determined that this incision both transceded and perforated the entire upper airway. So the strap neck muscles, the right jugular vein, and the right um, artery. Basically, he was cut ear to ear, all the way down to his spine. Dr. Horn concluded that the lacerations and puncture wounds found on Travis's body were consistent with a single-edge weapon at least five inches in length, so a knife. The knife wounds to his back had not entered the chest cavity, so they were not fatal. Um, There were obvious defensive wounds to his hands. Uh, They showed that he had attempted to protect himself during the attack. The fatal wounds inflicted on Travis were the single stab wound to the center of his chest, which punctured uh, some sort of major vein. We all know, I'm not good at pronouncing things. So a major vein and then the final throat slice. So that's how he died. The official cause of death was determined to be sharp force trauma of the neck and torso. The manner of death was homicide. All right. And yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more when we get to the trial. But um, up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the investigation and uh, Jody's road trip. Took a fucking road trip. Yeah. So the main homicide detective was Detective Flores. He obviously started with. Travis's closest friends, um, all of which made it clear that they believed Jody, his ex-girlfriend, was a likely suspect. So he followed up on a phone message that was left by a friend of Travis's named Clancy. She had seen Jody in Salt Lake City for a prepaid legal seminar on June 5th. And if you remember, um, Travis was killed on the 4th. So, I was about to say, so the day after she came yeah. him, she went to a conference? Yeah, she was in Utah, right here in our very own Utah, for, okay. uh, for a conference. 
Um, so she had been in the company of a man named Ryan Burns. Ryan told Clancy that Jody had left Northern California on June 3rd and had gotten to Utah on the 5th. A trip that only usually took 10 hours had taken Jody two days. He had lost communication with her for 24 hours, and she told him that she had gotten lost and had to sleep on the side of the road. So other people had tried to call her during this time frame, too, and her phone was, was off. Yeah. When your phone is off, <laughs> you're never up to Yeah, it. no. So the night of June 5th, Clancy and other friends had dinner, and Clancy noticed Band-Aids on Jody's fingers. Jody said she was a bartender and cut them. Like, that was a known fact. Like, I didn't know that was a fact. Well, but what is a known fact, though, is when you assault someone with a knife... You usually cut your hands. Yeah, right? because it's slippery from the blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, next, Detective Flores talked to Lisa Andrews. She had been Travis's most recent girlfriend and actually recalled a couple of nights earlier in the year where Travis had been over at her house when there had been knocks on the door and no one was there when they went and answered the oh, door. Ding Dong Dash. Yeah, there you go. Both occasions, um, the tires of Travis's vehicle also had been slashed. Lisa had even received an anonymous email. Actually, it was from John Doe, and it was filled with hostility and religious references mentioning her relationship with Travis and that she needed to, like, leave Travis alone. You remember any of those? <sighs> I know. I should have wrote them down. I will. You know what I could do is I could... There's a copy of the email. I'll put it on our Instagram. Oh, and maybe our TikTok, too. Yeah. Perfect. So, although Jody was looking more and more like a suspect, Flores didn't get tunnel vision, and he made sure to ask if there was anyone else that she could think of that may have had problems with Travis, and there there wasn't. Um, the defective found out that Jody was going to be in the area for Travis's memorial service, so he called her and asked if she can come by the station. Um, just to provide fingerprints and saliva for a DNA test for exclusionary purposes. Um, he already had Mimi, Dallin, and Michelle, the, the ones that had, that had found Travis's body. He had them already coming to, to do that exact thing. So he thought it would be a good idea to have Jody come in at the same time. Makes sense. Yeah. So they all showed up. Um, that must have been awkward. <laughs> right. Jody was the only one that declined to do a follow-up interview. Because a friend of hers had convinced her enough people were talking about her possible involvement, she thought she shouldn't do anything without consulting an attorney. Which, I mean, that's valid. So, During the early days of the investigation, Jody posted on Facebook an album titled In Loving Memory of Travis, which was filled with 25 pictures of them in places they had visited together. Jody had also been calling Travis's friends, asking if there was any update on the investigation. Detective Flores even went as far to tell some of Travis's friends that Jody was no longer a suspect, that she had been cleared. It was a ruse. Um, Since things were getting back to Jody, he didn't want Jody to think she was under suspicion. But other people started freaking out when they heard that. Yeah, I didn't know that she did that Facebook thing in loving memory of Travis. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I mentioned the voicemail earlier, um, and how Jody had left Travis a voicemail at 11.48 p.m. on June 4th. Yeah, that was in our last podcast. Yes. Um, so, they didn't know the significance of that until 10 days after Travis's body was found, and this is with the discovery of the pictures from his camera. That was in the washer. Yes, that was in the washer. So... 
A forensics expert was a forensics computer expert was actually to re, able to recover the pictures that had been deleted off the digital card. The pictures were all time stamped. Shut up. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is, it blows my mind. The last being taken at approximately five thirty four p.m. So Jody was taking pictures of Travis in the shower at around five thirty p.m. And the last picture of him was in a seated position on the shower floor. So, 44 seconds later, a blurry picture of the ceiling, guys. About a minute later, another picture taken upside down, and I'm sure by accident, because who does that on purpose? And it is of Travis lying on his back, blood evident around his neck and shoulders. But wait, you can also see the right pant leg and foot of the killer. So there's a dark colored soccer shoe, striped sweatpants, probably blue with a zipper on the back of the cup. Oh, and we have this picture. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put this picture on, on our social medias. Um, and then finally, one last picture, almost two minutes later, and when enhanced, it showed the bathroom hallway and baseboard drenched in a dark blood-like substance. Also recovered were nude pictures of both Travis and Jody that were taken earlier that day around 1.40 p.m. Definitive proof that Jody was, in fact, with Travis on June 4th. So now, now back to the voicemail. In it, Jody left an update message to Travis apologizing for not making it to Mesa and inviting him to see a play with her friend in July. So remember, this was left at 11.48 p.m. the night of June 4th. Yeah, that's the very same day. There is evidence she was with Travis that day. All right, so moving on to Jody's road trip. Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> it all started with a bad fight her and Travis had gotten into on May 6th, on May 26th. Travis was forced logged off of his Facebook, and he was certain it was Jody logging on to his account, which there had been there had been some instances in the past where she had snooped into his uh, phone and social media. So she ended up admitting to it, and then he said some nasty stuff to her to the tune of, you are the worst thing that ever has ever happened to me. I mean, people say those kinds of things, you know. Many believe that this was the catalyst for her murderous rape. She already had plans to go to Salt Lake City for that PPL seminar. She's like, might as well make a road trip out of it. (laughs) Detectives were able to put a timeline timeline together. So June 2nd, 2008, Jody packs an overnight bag and most likely her grandfather's 25 caliber pistol and rents a car in Eureka. Then drives south and borrows two gas cans from her ex, Daryl. Don't worry, we'll get into that more. Okay, <laughs> and, I got and then leaves for Mesa via Pasadena. The gas cans allowed her to get through Arizona without having to stop for gas and risk being spotted on security footage or leaving an electronic trail by using a credit card. So is this the trip that was supposed to take 10 hours that took her? Yes. Okay. Yes. So June 4th, 2008, around 4.30 a.m., she rolls up to Travis's house. So Jody had been talking to this guy, Ryan Burns, during this time, and her road trip to Utah was also meant for them to fill out the relationship and see where it might go. He had expected her on June 4th, but she hadn't showed up until the morning of the 5th. She was no longer blonde, but brunette, 
Which, and I, I gotta interrupt, because I said this before. It is not easy going from blonde to brunette. Because I have done it. And when I did it, there's like toners and shit you gotta use. I had like greenish tinted hair. It's not an easy process. So that's probably the most impressive thing that I think she did was dye her hair. But, and, and then I have to ask too, so she's dating someone. He's trying to date Mimi. Yes. And she road trips to his house. And they have their little naked photo shoot. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we know, I mean, that Travis had been, had trouble being faithful to, you know, his one girlfriend. Yeah. With Jody. So, I mean, it's not too shocking, but okay. still. All right. They went to, so her and Ryan, um, they went to this, this luncheon in separate vehicles. Jody was pulled over for having her rear license plate on upside down. So she had two separate stories that one of which that kids were messing with it when she had come out of a gas station on her trip and another story that her friends must have been playing a joke on her. Those are both bullshit. Yeah. So after lunch they went back to Ryan's place where him and Jody started fooling around and kissing and then later that night after dinner they had started fooling around again. Uh, Ryan reported that Jody had gotten on top of him aggressively. So just a reminder this all happened the day after she stabbed, shot, and nearly decapitated That's her ex-boyfriend. That's what I was going to say. That's exactly what's yeah. reading my mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, oh, Jody. All right, so on July 9th, 2008, exactly one month after Travis's body was found, a grand jury in Maricopa, Maricopa County indicted Jody on one count of first-degree murder. So an indictment charged that on or about the fourth day of June 2008, Jody quote, intending and knowing that her conduct could cause death with premeditation caused the death of Travis B. Alexander. The state of Arizona further alleged that because a 25 caliber handgun was used, the offense was classified as a dangerous felony. Yeah, so the handgun. Yeah, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. <laughs> so Jody had no knowledge of this indictment. Like. Um, like you said before, they had said that she wasn't a suspect anymore, so that she wasn't aware. I think she kind of knew. Uh, she was celebrating her 28th birthday back in um, Eureka, California. On the tw- uh, goodness, the numbers are so <laughs> hard. On the 14th of July, Detective Flores and two other investigators uh, from the Mesa. 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 Mesa Police Department flew to Eureka to arrest Jody on the charges of first-degree murder. Besides the arrest warrant, Flores carried two search warrants, one to be executed on Jody's parents' house and the other on her grandparents' house. So she had briefly lived with her parents after the murder and was currently living with her grandparents. And she didn't know it, but she was currently under surveillance and she was packing. So the cops started getting concerned that she might be preparing to flee. So an officer knocks on the front door under the guise of following up on this open burglary case. At that point, he executed the arrest warrant and the search warrant. Jody was removed from the house in handcuffs and walked down the street to a car where Detective Flores was waiting for her. Now, you might be wondering, what burglary? Well, buckle up. (laughs) So, let's travel back in time to May 28th, exactly one week before Travis was murdered. Jody's grandfather, Mr. Allen, he called police to his house to report a break-in. Police arrived and they found a broken door jam at the entrance of the home. And there had been a rash of burglaries in the area recently. So it wasn't that really like 
out of the question. But this one had a few odd things about it. So um, the so the TV appeared to be moved, but only the DVD player had been taken. Mr. Allen had an extensive gun collection, which he kept in an unlocked cabinet. Um, however, only one of his nine firearms was missing, a 25 caliber handgun. Jody arrived home 20 minutes later, and she was asked to inventory her property, and she reported that she had $30 missing. That day, she had also told police that the only other valuable that she had, her laptop, was safe. And this is what I find odd. She says it probably was because she had well hidden it in a basket of laundry. Oh, that, that's mm -hmm. normal, right? But the gun um, Jody's grandfather had reported stolen that day was never found. And the fact that it's the same caliber as the weapon that had been used on Travis is quite suspicious. Yeah. So, meanwhile, the search of the residence is underway. Items of interest that the police took away from Jody's personal um, effects. So, there was journals that they took, a box of receipts that detailed Jody's trip to Utah during the month of June. There were several receipts co um, that covered the locations of California, Nevada, and Utah that police could use to map out her route around the time of Travis's death. There were no receipts, however, to collaborate that she had been in Arizona. Wow. The police executed another search warrant and found evidence that suggested that Jody was, in fact, planning to leave town. So they speculated that she had gotten word about the indictment and that they were closing in on her. And so she had a rental car packed full with boxes. <clears throat> yeah, I'd say she's leaving. Yeah. Hidden amongst those clothes, they found two knives and ammunition for a 9mm handgun. But no gun was found. But a few weeks later... However, police got a call from someone that worked at Hertz Rental Car in San Francisco at the International Airport there. So she had rented a white Chevy Cobalt. Um, and when they were servicing, servicing it and cleaning it, which is normal, yeah. a 9mm gun had been discovered hidden in the wheel well. What? Yes. <laughs> now, it's not the gun used to trace this murder, oh, but gosh. the... But it did match the ammo found in the car during the execution of the search warrant. It's all really odd. Later, Jody claimed, oh, this drives me insane. She claimed she bought the gun because she had been planning to drive uh, to Monterey to kill herself. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to commit suicide in her hometown near her family. This was not the last time that Jody would explain away suspicious behavior by saying that she was driven by thoughts of suicide. Also, I have to mention this. So Jody's father, like everyone was interviewed, mm -hmm. right? No big surprise. Her father was interviewed by Detective Flores. He stated that when Jody was in Palm Desert, she had been crazy for a year. She'd call up crying hysterically, needing money. He reported that she was very upset when she saw Travis with another woman in his house, referring back to an August 2007 incident where Jody was peeping in Travis's living room window. Oh, yeah, and saw him with another woman. And then she called her daddy afterwards, like, bawling and in tears. Mm. All right, so Jody's arrested now. And this is where I think that this case, I mean, everything is interesting. But her interviews by far astound me. Picking out the strangest moments from her interviews are difficult. There's the headstand against the wall, the slow, seductive backbend the low lilting rendition of 
Dido. Is it Dido? I don't I'm pronounce not. words. I, don't, I think so. Song here with me. The stuffing of sheets of paper down her pants. Or mm. the trifling self-criticism as she ponders her appearance while in the interrogation room. Um, she would say things like, you should have at least done your makeup, Jody. Gosh. Um, oh, my sorry. God. <laughs> I, I just, oh. But my favorite what-the-fuck moment is when she gets up on the interview table. It's on all fours. She's barking and growling, and then she starts laughing uncontrollably. She starts hitting herself in the head and then laughing again before standing up and singing Popular from Wicked, um, followed by more insane laughing. So I actually put some of this on our TikTok. Yeah, is, this, you, need to, you guys need to see this. It is, like, insane. And so I thought that she was, like, prepping for, like, some insanity and, Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I think everyone and I think. And I don't mean to skip ahead to your trial, but that was never on the table. Nope. She was never like, oh, I did it because I'm crazy. Look at me. I'm acting like a fool in, you know, in these interrogation yep. rooms. No. It was never. Oh. And some people tried to say that it was just, like, all that anxious stress and her, like, getting it out. I am an anxious person. I have never gotten up on a table and, like, growled and, okay. Anyways, yeah, moving no. on. Moving on. So Detective Flores spent hours trying to convince Jody to confess, but he made, like, little headway. He entertained her deep denials and excuses, and he countered each one with, like, overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And and I wanted to get into all of the different quotes and stuff that they said, but it was just too much. Um, so finally he surrendered, and at which point he just was like, we're done, you know, we're going to... Um, not bag and tag you. <laughs> what is it called? <laughs> really, like, take your fingerprints and all that stuff. So he he's like, okay, so, like, we're moving on. And she says, she asks if the story is going to be played on the evening news. Um, okay. Mm. And then she wants to know what exactly Alexander, the Alexander family is going to find out. Uh, hopefully the truth. Yeah. Flores left the interrogation room and... She had to know that the cameras were on there, right? Whatever. So she's alone in the room, and she strolls over to the far wall, far wall, gets down on both knees, places her head between her knees, lifts her legs up and over, and assumes a hand, handstand position against the wall. Then she gets back on her feet, and she's, you know, looking around, criticizing her makeup, kind of the stuff I already mentioned, and she starts singing softly to herself, Oh, Holy Night, which... You know, it didn't we're occur in the middle until of now. summer. We're in July, yeah. yeah. Um, whatever. So then um, the the police come in to, 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 like, escort her way to go get fingerprinted and to get her mugshot. And she asked to put makeup on before her mugshot. Mm. And we're going to have to post that mugshot because she's smiling in it. Yeah. Who the fuck smiles in a mug? Whatever. So. Originally, she told police that she had not been a Mesa on the day of the murder, and that she had last seen Travis in March of 2008. Um, Jody later tells police that two intruders broke into <sighs> Alexander's home, murdering him and attacking her. Two years after the arrest, Jody told police that she kills Alexander, but in self-defense, claiming that she had been a All right, so we're going to go into the trial now, and this is very interesting. There's a lot of information, but... 
So, well, let's start with the, with the timeline. So, um, like Christy said, Jody was indicted on July 9th of 2008 um, on one count of first-degree murder, and this was under two theories. So, premeditated murder and felony murder, which is when the murder occurs during the course of a felony. So, the felony in question here was burglary, and just, just to be clear, the definition of burglary is entering or remaining unlawfully in a residence with the intent to commit any theft or felony. Yeah, because I was confused about that. I was like, what did she yeah. steal? Yeah, exactly. So it's that remaining unlawfully in a residence yes. with the intent to yep. commit a felony. Yep. So um, so the, de- the offense was also considered a dangerous felony because a firearm was used, like Christy said earlier. So Jody's arrested on June 14th, and then she's in jail Um. On the 5th of September, so a couple of months later, she's finally extradited to Arizona. And sometimes, you know, the justice process moves pretty slow. So she's she's sent to Arizona to face that first-degree murder charge. October 8th, um, Jody finds out that the Maricopa County's attorney's office has filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty. So in order to seek the death penalty, the state would have to prove that there was at least one aggravating circumstance that qualified it. So in the state of Arizona, there are 14 aggravating factors, and they were hoping this murder to be qualified under the especially cruel, heinous, or depraved manner. Considering Travis was stabbed and sliced more than two, th- two dozen times and shot in the head, yeah, sure, I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate. That's fair. So the state concluded that he had suffered physical and mental anguish, and he was conscious, Long enough to know he was going to die. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The autopsy report <sighs> showed that. So, fast forward to August 2009. Um, this was a year later. The probable cause hearing to decide if there was enough evidence for that aggravated circumstance to if that was going to go to trial. So, the judge found that the murder wasn't heinous or depraved, but that it was especially cruel. Oh, my God. So, I know it's kind of weird, but at the same time, they also were able to qualify it under that aggravating circumstance just for that especially cruel part. Luckily. Oh, so it didn't have to be all yeah, three. Okay. Yeah, no, so it didn't have to be all three. So, but it was especially cruel. So, um, this is the only part of the aggravating circumstance that would be allowed to go before the jury. So, then we're going into pretrial filings. Um, the fact that this was the death penalty case. And the defense changing strategies from a masked intruder theory to self-defense, it slowed the trial for nearly two years. So then it became clear that Jody's defense was going to be a case of character assassination of Travis oh, Alexander. Yeah. This is the worst part. There had been nearly 80,000 electronic messages exchanged between the two, and the defense was going to try to use them to paint Travis as an abuser. All right, so let's go to June of 2011. The defense team put on the table that Jody would be willing to take a plea bargain and plead guilty to second-degree murder for a term of years. So it could be as little as 10 years and as much as 22. Prosecution was not interested. There's there's so much evidence. So so there's still more delays to follow. Jody even decided that she was going to defend herself. (laughs) And this lasted a total of about a week. From August 8th to August 15th of 2011. So we're going to fast forward another year to December 10th of 2012. 
So jury selection finally starts. They start with a pool of 375 potential candidates, and it took three weeks to see 11 men and seven women. And I've worked in the courts before. It is extremely interesting how they do jury selection. Oh, yeah. But I've I've never seen one for, like, a murder case. So I can't even imagine how intense this this was. Um, And then January 2nd, 2013, veteran prosecutor Juan Martinez, 25 years with the county attorney's office, would only be accompanied by Detective Flores at the prosecution table. This was highly unusual because usually you have a team of attorneys in, yeah. in death penalty cases, but Martinez worked best alone. Uh-huh. And we'll talk yeah, about him later. so he was relentless, he was tenacious, and he was methodical. Public enemy number one among local defense attorneys. And then on the, de- the defense side, we have um, so Jody had to have a get her attorneys, court um, yeah, court appointed because she couldn't afford um, an attorney. So they were Kirk Nurmi. And Jennifer Wilmot. And then the judge was Judge Sherry Stevens that would preside over the proceedings. She had been elected to the bench in 2001. And the Arias case would be the most high-profile case of her 11 years on the bench. So going into to, um, opening remarks, I think the best way to describe um, how this trial was going to go is a quote directly from Prosecutor Juan Martinez. Quote, this is not a case of who done it. The person who done it, the person who, who committed this killing, sits in court today. It's the defendant, Jody Ann Arias. And the person that she done it to is an individual by the name of Travis Alexander, a former boyfriend of hers, an individual she was in love with, an individual that was a good man, an individual that was one of the greatest blessings in her life. And this love? Well, she rewarded that love for Travis Victor Alexander by sticking a knife in his chest. She slit his throat as a reward for being a good man, and in terms of these blessings, she knocked the blessings out of him by putting a bullet in his head. Unquote. (laughs) Okay, so the defense started showing happy pictures of the smiling couple, um, but soon described Jody as Travis's dirty little secret, going into full-fledged victim blaming. And I know that a lot of people um, feel very strongly one way or the other about... um, Travis being this good man. Yeah. Um, they claim Travis wasn't the good virginal, virginal? I think so. Virgin Mormon man he portrayed himself as. Going into explicit sexual detail, they described how he had convict, uh, convinced Jody that oral and anal sex were less a sin than vaginal sex. But just wait, <laughs> there is so much more to come. Is that a pun? So, (laughs) the prosecution starts with Mimi Hall. So, remember, Mimi was the woman that was his new, um, the the new object of Travis's affection. So, Mimi told about how Travis was the perfect gentleman. She always felt very safe with him. He was never aggressive or out of line. Travis told her about his ex that had been stalking him and that she had followed them on a date, slashed his tires, and crawled crawled through the doggy door in his house. She had decided that she didn't want to pursue a romantic relationship with him, but had agreed to go on that work trip to Cancun as friends. She also knew that Travis was not in good standings with the temple, but didn't ask why. Although, we all know. Over the next eight days, the prosecution presented their case. Detective Flores had the most compel- uh, compelling testimony, 
considering that he was the one who had had the multiple phone conversations with Jody. She witnessed, um, he witnessed her life's firsthand. The phone call from Jody to Flores was played. The jury was able to hear her phony ignorance, asking for confirmation of rumors she had heard and even suggesting a false suspect. On cross-examination, the defense used Detective Flores' testimony to continue to support Jody's claims she was victimized by Travis. They addressed emails exchanged between the two and how Jody alleged Travis had been mean to her, calling her a slut and a whore and trying to further their theory that Jody was a victim of his domestic violence. Next up is the medical examiner, Dr. Horn. Um, and the pictures displayed during the t testimony in the most literal sense, painted a picture with Travis's blood of the life and death of Travis Alexander during his last moments on this earth. Dr. Horn explained cause of death as Travis's bloated, distorted face flashed on the projector for the whole world to see. Juan Martinez took it a step further and decided to show the most gruesome picture of all. And it's that one that still gives me nightmares. Um, in this one, Travis's head was tilted back the gaping wound that stretched across his neck ear to ear showed how he was nearly decapitated. <sighs> yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. um, as stated in the autopsy, Jody had slashed through the arteries, muscles, and his airway. I mean, this was a vicious attack. Dr. Horn then went on to say he didn't think that Travis was alive when he was shot in the head. It was hard to tell because his brain was so badly decomposed. There was no bleeding from the head wound. Um, which would indicate that there was no blood flow. The defense tried to argue that the way blood flowed on his shoulders looked like it had been from the gunshot, along with the fact that it appeared Travis's head was slightly raised, meaning he couldn't have been incapacitated from the, the, the neck. Oh, and head. they they got this um, from the picture, that inadvertent picture of Travis on the floor with the bloody shoulders. That's where they're getting this from. Oh, it's just, it's a nightmare. Um, and it was very important because the defense was trying to prove that the gunshot was first and that in self-defense. But Travis's defense wounds and the fact that he was able to move around the bathroom so much was in like, that directly opposed that theory. So the next on the stand was Ryan Burns, the man that Jody had spent the time with in Utah. The police officer that pulled her over for her license plate in Utah um, officers in charge of the report of the burglary at her grandfather's home, an employee at the rental place um, that Jody picked up her rental car, and a Verizon employee that testified to Jody's cellular activity during these dates, leading up to um, during and after Travis's murder. So Jody had made four phone calls to Travis after his murder, and and I, I think that's so ridiculous. Like when murderers do that to try to cover themselves. Yeah.
my gosh, last name. Melendez. Melendez was the police officer who had recovered the pictures off of Travis's camera, and he was responsible for the smoking gun evidence in the case. I mean, they had so many. I can't, I don't even know how many people they had on the stand. I, I, um, yeah, there's numbers, but I, I can't remember. There was a, a ton. But the police officer, there, there was 90 pictures still on that camera, um, but only ones from the crime scene. And the nude pictures of Jody and Travis taken earlier that day had been deleted. So, prosecution prosecution are hard, dude. rested, and the defense began their case on January 29th. And they instantly started with witnesses to try and prove Jody a sympathetic, submissive, battered woman that would never do the things she was accused of that she had already admitted yeah, to. Dude. Anyway, Daryl, who had owned a house with Jody described her as a responsible, caring, loving person. What? And she was never je- jealous or possessive during their relationship. Um, on cross-examination, Martinez dropped the bomb of the phone call between him and Jody. Yeah, the phone call where she asked him if she could borrow two gas cans for her upcoming road trip and that she was going to Mesa, Arizona. I'm actually really surprised that they remained like on speaking terms. Because right? he was the one that she left. Or they like together for like four years, yeah. And then four days after meeting Travis, she yeah. like dumped his ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So next was Lisa Andrews. This is the woman that Travis had been dating between and during Jody and Mimi Hall. The defense wanted to use her to establish that Travis was a sex crazed maniac that was really only trying to get into her pants. But the prosecution turned that back around with the proof that after she sent an email to Travis about her issues with him, that he started to correct his behavior. He made sure not to engage in any unwanted physical touching unless Lisa initiated it. And at this point, where Martinez thought it was appropriate to um, flash that that photo of... Yeah, well, he loves putting up grisly photos. Yeah, so this is when he decided that he was going to put up that that picture of, of Travis's oh, throat. The nightmare picture? Yeah, the one of Travis's face tilted slightly back, bloated, gray, exposing a gaping oh. wound across his neck. His family didn't expect this, as oh. you can imagine. It, it truly was a stunt put on by a very coffee attorney, as much as it, it kind of pains me to say that, because, oh my gosh. yeah. So, yeah, not a few, not a huge fan of Martinez. Well, I'm not, I'm really not a huge fan of his, and we'll get to him later. Um... The next witnesses were the brother and sister friends that had accompanied Jody and Travis on a couple of the trips. They testified to witnessing Travis and Jody getting into heated fights, but also that the fights weren't extraordinary. Um, a forensic, a computer forensic examiner who talked about the photos that argued that Jody was a brunette a month before the murder, and not just days before the murder. Um, and a specialist in video and audio enhancement that would talk about the sex tape heard around the world. So they they played and read like so much of their sex life. It was disgusting. Yeah. On February fourth, two thousand and thirteen, Jody took the stand in her own defense, which I think is like mm-hmm. the stupidest thing that someone can do. In the first few minutes of her testimony, she admitted to killing Travis. Boom! I say we're done. <laughs> um. But she did so because she um, said that he attacked her, and so she defended herself. Jody then went on to describe her childhood and the abuse that she sustained at the hands of her parents. While her parents sat in the courtroom, they were audience to this. And we have already talked about 
the alleged abuse, um, never being substantiated, but whatever, you know. So Jody was on the stand for 18 days. 18 days of Jody on the stand. That's just ridiculous. just think about that. If you aren't familiar with trials at all, um, a defendant often doesn't take the stand because of their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. It often opens up a defendant to intense scrutiny and cross-examination, and it usually does more harm than yeah. good. The jury is instructed by the judge not to draw conclusions as the defendant doesn't take the stand. But often, as humans, we obviously still wonder, like, what know. are they hiding? I never expect them to take the stand. I know. Now, I, that's just, yeah. So, as you can ima- imagine, Jody's time on the stand was a fucking circus. <laughs> but let's talk about the wholesome picture that the defense painted first. Okay, so Jody first talked about her three relationships before Travis. Cheerfully talked about um, the relationships and how they ended. The defense then took Jody through her relationship with Travis, starting at the very beginning, um, sex playing the biggest role in, the t- in telling the story. The defense had Jody go through meticulously, and Jody remembered nearly every detail of every sexual um, it- event that happened in detail through the ins and outs of their sexual history. Oral sex from the very beginning, anal sex after her baptism, and finally to the first time they had vaginal sex. The defense was clearly trying to prove how Travis's sexual appetite was like um, insatiable. Insatiable. Yeah. yeah, thank you. That Jody had been under pressure to please him. She told them a tale of a time that she had caught. Oh, God. She told them a tale about the time that she caught Travis masturbating to the picture of a five to six year old boy. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> so. Just for context, we know that Jody is a storyteller. I mean, all the way back to her childhood. And this is this is probably one of the things that irritated me the most was her saying that he was masturbating to pictures of this little child. Um, and she's had several versions of what happened the day that Travis died. You know, she was in Arizona, but there were these intruders that killed him, and then she killed him in self defense. Mm-hmm. Anyways, people were enraged by this accusation, same as I am. About this, yeah, like masturbating thing. Headlines even claimed that Jody had surpassed Casey Anthony as America's most hated female. To hear such an extreme story from the source with so little credibility displayed an ignorance that and a boldness that was just disturbing. This claim was never substantiated. Forensic computer experts went through Travis's computer with fine-toothed comb. And there were zero, zero, zero pictures or searches or anything for underage minors yeah. and, and, and pornographic. I know it makes me sick. I didn't, I didn't want to include that part, but it's it's important to the story. I know so. I saw your note and I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't want to mention it. All right. So, of course, to those around Travis, the experience felt very different. To them, Jody was slaughtering Travis twice. First by physically killing him, then by attacking his character in an equally vicious fashion, knowing full well that he was no longer there to defend himself. Because next was a sex tape. Jody had recorded. Um, she claims that Travis requested she record, but we all know oh, she yeah, can't sure. tell the truth. So on on May tenth, that she had recorded this um, this conversation. This was after she had moved away from Arizona. Um, 
less than a month before she killed Travis. So I'm not going to share all the details of the sex tape oh, because it, it's very descriptive. I mean, it, there is a recording out there if you want to hear it. You're not even going to tell them <laughs> a little bit about the tree or anything? No, I'm not, I'm not going into any of that. Um, but both parties, I can tell you that both parties played equal roles in explaining their fantasies and desires during this, yeah, this phone story. sex. Yeah, it I, wasn't just one or the other. It was no. it, they were both equal participants. Yeah, I went through and I read and I listened, and it it seemed equal. Yeah, she wanted absolutely. it just as much as he wanted it. Yeah. So from here, the defense had Jody describe the exact details of events leading up to the murder and the murder itself. Jody explained that she arrived at Travis's house in the early hours of June fourth. They slept. They had sex. Jody showed Travis's pictures from a recent trip they took. Travis had gotten mad that a CD wasn't working in the in the CD drive. Then they decided to have a photo shoot in the shower. They were using Travis's new camera, and after taking some shots, Jody accidentally dropped the camera, and Travis became so infuriated, he body slammed her into the tile and started chasing her around the bathroom. Jody says she ran into the closet and retrieved a gun Travis had there. Just FYI, there was never a gun in the closet. And fired it at him as he rushed at her like a line linebacker. Oh, this is why yeah. the defense wanted the gunshot to come in first. Exactly. But what about those 29 stab wounds? What about the nearly decapitated head of Travis Alexander? Oh, wait, no, I have a question. So if the gun was in the closet, where did she get the knife? Well, yeah, exactly. So Jody said she didn't remember any of it. She, they never found the knife, by the way. And that's, uh... Yeah, so there was a gap. And she said that there was a gap in her memory from the shooting. From the point where she shot him through the stabbing, the neck slashing, and maybe she had a slight memory of dragging his body back to the shower, but she didn't remember the deleting of pictures or putting the items in the washing machine. I mean, all of it had basically been erased from the brain. It's convenient. Yeah. Very convenient. Um, so Juan Martinez, uh, the lawyer. So he's up next, and he didn't miss a beat. He went right into Jody's inability to tell the truth. Her convenient memory lapses, which he later called Jody's fog, and then into her personal journals. People don't keep journals. <laughs> not a good idea. Um, so not only did Jody's journal show a woman very much in love, but there were no mentions of Travis's alleged physical or emotional abuse. The incident where she caught him looking at you know, child porn, or literally any other negative talk about him. It's not in her journals. Mm -mm. You would think that that would be in her journals. Yeah. She backed this up by saying she never wanted to write any negative things because she believed in the law of attraction that urged one to only think positive thoughts. I am one like that as well, but I still write shit down. Yeah. You need to stop writing shit down. <laughs> um, Martinez dug in more relentlessly went over her continuous lies, dismantled her claims of abuse, and hammered home the fact that Jody was very much a willing participant in all of these sexual encounters. Jody often responded back to Martinez with um, evasiveness and attitude. No big surprise. <laughs> On uh, the recross, the defense would try again to try to prove that Jody was not this cold-blooded killer, but a woman who was very much... Um, acting in self-defense. They called two mental health professionals, one a forensic psychologist and a psychotherapist, domestic violence expert. 
Dr. Samuels testified that Jody's hog, as Martinez mm-hmm. calls it, was in fact dissociative amnesia, and that her actions right after, um, you know, lying about her whereabouts, the introductory, the makeout sessions, whatever, were the beginning stages of post-traumatic stress disorder. Which, yeah, that's the thing. Um, and her trying to cope with the, the horror that she did. Oh, names. Alice LaViolette Violet testified to the instances of abuse by Travis. Of course, these are all at Jody's word. Travis isn't there to defend himself. No. Um, and, and called him this controlling, deceptive, manipulative, um, stating that Jody was clearly an abused woman. Martinez followed with um, the mental health experts of his own, who testified that Jody displayed seven of the nine indicators of borderline personality disorder, the most notable of which was the inappropriate and intense anger. So there's there's so much more that happened during this trial. It's just I had to pick the, the points that I thought were most important, but there's a lot. So if you want to dive into this more, please do. Yeah, um, it was either that or do a part three. Yeah. <laughs> So next, the jury was given instructions and sent for deliberations. And this was Friday, May 3rd of 2013. Um, Remember, they started on, I believe it was January 2nd. Um, The jury returned on Wednesday, May 8th after deliberating for only 15 hours and five minutes. So first degree murder, Jody Ann Arias was found guilty. All 12 jurors, jurors believed it was premeditated murder and seven also believed that it was felony murder. Jody was interviewed by the media after the verdict was read and said the most insensitive, absolutely fucking bizarre thing ever. <laughs> Quote, longevity runs in my family, and I don't want to spend the rest of my natural life in one place. I am pretty healthy. I don't smoke, and I would probably live a long time. So that is not something I was looking forward to. <laughs> I said years ago that I would rather get death than life, and that is still true today. I believe death is the ultimate freedom, so I would rather just have my freedom as soon as I can get it. Sure, Jody. Yeah, because Travis didn't need his life. Oh, she is such. <sighs> so the verdict had come in, but the trial wasn't over. Um, the jury would be asked with to decide whether this was especially cruel, so that aggravating circumstance um, in the aggravate in the aggravation phase. phase yeah. The prosecution called one witness. Dr. Horn, who once again went over the autopsy and solidified the fact that Travis went through physical and mental pain after the fatal wound to his chest that hit a major blood vessel. It took him two minutes to die from that wound while he fought to disarm Jody, which is shown by the cuts on his hands. Um, He was repeatedly stabbed, and then he had his throat slashed. Not surprisingly, the jury found the murder especially cruel in only one hour and 33 minutes. now that Jody was eligible for the death penalty, it would be time for the penalty phase. You know, two minutes is forever when you're excruciating. Yeah, so they had, um, uh, Martinez had everyone pause for two minutes to kind it's of forever. bring home the point of how long that felt. I can't even. So um, during the penalty phase, they have the, the, the portion, is the, the first portion is where victim impact statements are read to the court. So Travis's siblings, of course, um, so they yeah, read their statements. And then Jody, on the other hand, talked about her charitable efforts in jail. What? And she held up, and I shit you not, a domestic violence awareness shirt that she had designed that said survivor on it. Oh, no. My 
anger knows no bounds. <laughs> not sure that, really not sure that there are adequate words in the English language to describe how incredibly fucked this move was. But anyway, after four days, the jury was able to, wasn't able to reach a unanimous verdict and the judge declared a mistrial. So the, the penalty phase would have to be rescheduled again for later in the summer. So mistrial is and she's still guilty, but they haven't decided yeah, what so, to do Yeah, so yeah, she's absolutely still guilty, but the sentence, just the sentencing portion, ha- portion has to be done again. Okay. So, um, but it would be an, almost another two years. So because of the complications in the sentencing process, she was not given her life, she ended up getting a life sentence, not okay. the death penalty. Okay. So she was not even given that until April of 2015. All right, so let's talk about Jody in prison. So in prison, Jody was housed with Tracy Brown and Donovan Baring. Um, well, so they were incarcerated at the same time on charges of kidnapping and arson-related charges. So Brown and Baring, they spoke with Lifetime about their time that they shared with um, a cell with Jody, And they labeled her as manipulative, among other, other things. So Lifetime was doing this special, um, Cellmate Secrets. And Brown and Baring claimed that um, Jody would use her good looks and sexuality to manipulate male guards. Very surprising. Very surprising. Um, Brown and Baring were also involved romantically. So they had a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And they claimed that Jody. She injected herself into their relationship from time to time. During one encounter, uh, Brown and Jody performed a strip tease for Baring. Wow. The two women claimed that although they never engaged in actual physical sexual acts with Jody, when the two of them were having sex, Jody would simply refuse to leave the room. Eventually, the couple got married, and I shit you not, Jody officiated the ceremony. Wow. Uh, so Jody secretly penned a prison memoir and a plot to profit off of the murder of Travis. She hoped that it would cement her status as America's most notorious femme fatale. Jody thought she was going to be famous, and I guess in her own way she kind of is. Yeah. She wanted to write a memoir to explain her story, thinking it was going to be this number one bestseller. But cellmates say that as soon as you start reading it, you find out how truly warped she is. Jody jotted down her ideas and mailed them off to publishers, um, which we haven't seen anything, so uh, I'm uh, assuming uh, that nothing's happened. Yeah. There was one cha- uh, chapter titled Brighter Days, where she confessed her real motive for murdering Travis. You ready? Yeah. Her hatred of being rejected. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Jody also wrote to TV stations, because you know people want to interview her, right? Mm-hmm. And she demanded that if they wanted an interview, there had to be a clause put into like the written agreement that no footage of her crying would be broadcast if she cried during any part of the interview. <sighs> okay. I was really pissed to read that she was trying to make money off of the brutal murder of Travis. Oh, yeah. So when I read that she was working as a library aide, making 40 cents an hour, I was ecstatic. It was short-lived. Okay. Oh, I found out that she used a lot of her prison time to focus on her artwork, and she started working with these two auctioneers at eBay. And unfortunately, it is legally impossible to stop her from profiting off of this project. Many wondered how Jody was even able to orchestrate like this operation in the first place, but you have to understand, 
she's able to have access to paper and purchase colored pencils. And if she wants to release her property to someone outside of the prison system, she can. Wow. So, brace yourself, little ones. According to Forbes, Jody's current net worth stands between one to five million dollars that poor. Yeah, so the unfortunate part of that is that people are, are willing and actually want to like mem- memorabilia and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah and, and I'm I don't have enough time to talk about it all, but I went and I looked at her art and yeah. here, you wanna get even more pissed off? Do you know who she uses as her muse? Travis's sister. What? So a lot of the pictures, they would show her artwork and then like a picture of Travis's sister and they were like, mm, it was yeah. it was too, too oh, no. similarly, like it was, it was eerie. So moving on. Um, also, believe it or not, Jody had a steady stream of love letters from men looking to court her into did. a romantic relationship. According to Jody, she receives marriage proposals on a weekly basis. And some of the men are married and offering to leave their wives for her. <gasps> okay, Jody. Um, Jody is involved with a romantic, uh, in a romantic relationship uh-huh. with this guy named Ben Ernest. Um, ben was living with this other woman, a single mother of two, but he became obsessed with Jody in 2012 during the media storm surrounding her trial. The two began corresponding while Jody was behind bars, and they quickly became buddies and eventually became talking. They started talking on the phone three times a week. Prison records indicate, um, they don't indicate anything. They fucking show that Ben visits Jody like every weekend. Um, and Jody was even considering getting married to Ben. Jody started planning a wedding behind bars. She wanted all of her friends and family to be there. And she thought it would be this like fairy tale wedding to the man of the, of her dreams that she loves. Okay, first of all, you're behind bars. Mm. Like anyway, she had a very detailed idea of what she wanted her prison wedding to be. She wanted to wear a figure hugging dress and hold a bouquet. She wanted a flashy diamond ring and wedding band and photos of her wedding day. Once again, you're behind fucking bars. Yeah, like. Well. You'd be lucky to have a toilet paper dress. Like, she what the was, fuck? She's not one to have rational thoughts in her Oh, body. well, speaking of rational thoughts, not only did she want to marry Ben, they wanted to have babies. <laughs> Luckily, she's not allowed conjugal visits. <sighs> Additionally, she lost her contact privileges, so she can't talk to Ben uh, back in 2016. Because she received a disciplinary violation for calling a guard a cock blocker while she was detained. Oh my gosh. I know, it was so oh, great. But Jody wasn't the only one caught in some scandalous situations. Oh no. So over the years, remember Juan Martinez, that prosecutor? Oh, that's smart. He, he tried some of the most high-profile high murder cases in the Valley and put dozens of people behind bars. However, in an 18-page ethics complaint, that was filed against him, outlining allegations of inappropriate behaviors and actions by Martinez. Oh, yeah. The state bar charges filed against him indicated he leaked sealed information to a blogger whom he was having an affair with. During the sentencing phase of the trial. Of Jody's trial. Yeah. 
Yeah, there was so much more, but Sarah wouldn't let me put it all in here. No, like no, pages. don't say Sarah wouldn't let you. We decided that together. <laughs> well, we need to, <laughs> I want to do a part three. So after 30 years as a prosecutor in 2020, so just last year, Martinez agreed to be disbarred in the state of Arizona, and he could no longer practice law there. Thank God. The trial of Jody Arias was an absolute phenomenon. In terms of television viewing audience, it ranked with the trials of O.J. Simpson and Casey Anthony. As much people hated Joey, Jody, Jody, there was they were also intrigued about who she really was. So during her 18 days on the stand, she seemed eager to assassinate the character of the man she claimed to have loved without hesitation, accusing him of heinous, heinous acts. Man, now I can't talk. I know words are hard, like pedophilia and physical abuse. That she had murdered Travis once was horrific enough, but to attack him again in this way, under oath and in front of his whole family, was despicable. Oh, absolutely. I I watched videos of his family reacting, and it was heart-wrenching. Um, ultimately, I, I thought about this case a lot, and I, I think Jody came to the realization that Travis wasn't going to settle down with her, and she wasn't willing to share him with anyone else, or have him date or marry anyone. It had to be Jody, and I think it boiled down to the whole: if I can't have you, nobody can. That's exactly what it was. So, guys, we're we're here at the end. Like I said, there's so much more information we could have given, but we really wanted to wrap this up in two parts. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, for posts and photos regarding this case, you can find us on Instagram at Unreasonable True Crime, Facebook at True Crime unreasonable doubt and you can also follow us on twitter and tiktok for upcoming episodes see you later guys thanks guys thanks